The Gut Pharmacist Podcast with Riley Ramosco, traditional naturopath and holistic nutritionist. Dr. Mark Pimentel and his team research irritable bowel syndrome, one of the most prevalent gastrointestinal conditions affecting about 10% of the population worldwide and about 10 to 15% of people in the U.S. In the past, there was no definitive test to diagnose IBS, and for a time, IBS was thought to be a purely psychological disease. However, Dr. Mark Pimentel and his team discovered a blood test to provide a definitive diagnosis showing that IBS is an organic disease. Having a definitive diagnosis for IBS paved the way for additional research in the Pimentel lab to treat the condition. Dr. Pimentel researches SIBO, IBS, metabolic diseases, and many others as they relate to the microbiome. Dr. Mark Pimentel is a pioneer in the field of IBS and SIBO, and it's an honor to have him on today. Welcome to the Gut Pharmacist podcast. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Mark Pimentel, an elite researcher in IBS and SIBO and gastroenterology. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark, for being on the show. So great to be here. Thank you. Of course. So give us a quick intro background. Why did you pursue IBS research in particular? Well, it never started that way. It wasn't the intention. Uh, but as I was uh, developing my GI fellowship, I started to do research in areas uh, of motility. And what I found was that IBS patients were, this was in 1996, to date myself, uh, that IBS patients were like my neighbor, and they weren't psychologically altered. They weren't depressed or anxious in the way that that was causing their their concerns or their illness. And so we started on a journey of trying to figure out what is going on with IBS. And, and uh, one of the main symptoms, which I know we'll get into, is bloating. And, and people just ignored that symptom. They just wanted the constipation to be better, the diarrhea to be better in terms of drug development. But bloating was really the primary symptom. Right. And so you're basically saying IBS is not just a psychogenic disorder. There's a lot more to it than that is what you well, found. It more to now look, look 26 years later, we still don't have a study where you take a thousand people and you randomize them one group to stress and anxiety and, and all of that. And another group to, to placebo to prove that stress or anxiety or depression are causes of IBS. We don't have that study. Uh, and 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 so to attribute it that way is still there isn't enough data there never was enough data and i know i'm being a little bold in saying that i'm not saying anxiety depression and other illnesses aren't real they aren't true that they're not present in patients with ibs and they shouldn't be dealt with uh, appropriately what i'm saying is that we can't really say that those are the causes of ibs and so that's where the story begins in 1996 is it doesn't make sense uh, first of all, there's no real proof. There's just associations. And then, uh, you know, these patients were looking for help. Absolutely. You felt a huge need for this area. So yeah. in your uh, educated opinion, do you think IBS should be used as a diagnosis? Well, I, I've had varying opinions about that over the years. Here's where I landed now. It's really hard to change the nomenclature that's been around for 30 years. Uh, so I compare, and we'll get into the bacteria and some of the things that we found, but I compare IBS to now peptic ulcer disease. 
you go in, you see an ulcer, but you don't know why. And that was in the 1980s. And so then along comes a guy who says, well, it could be a bacteria called H. pylori. Uh, and about 60% of people with ulcers, H. pylori is the cause. And the other 40%, it's other things. Um, and the story is very similar in that respect. But the name peptic ulcer disease is still peptic ulcer disease. So it's not about the name as I've matured over years. It's about what is the cause of that name for you. And, and, and I think that's a better way to kind of understand it because people get confused. Do I have SIBO? Do I have IBS? What is it different? It's the same. It's just IBS is the overarching umbrella and SIBO is the cause of your IBS. I think that's how I see it now. Absolutely. And I say some of the similar things. So I've learned from you, one of the best. So it's good to know I'm on the right track too. Um, so with that being said, what are some of the common causes that you see for IBS? Well, uh, absolutely. And, and I can say this without a shadow of a doubt, that food poisoning triggers IBS. We have lots of data. Unlike the data on cause and effect from depression or anxiety, there are 25 studies which were reviewed in a meta-analysis by the Mayo Clinic in 2017 and published in a very prolific journal that IBS is caused by food poisoning, reviewing all 25 of those prospective studies. So we think that that occurs or that 60% uh, of IBSD, particularly the diarrhea form, are caused by food poisoning. So again, it's a similar story to H. pylori in that sense. And that that food poisoning causes damage to the gut in a way that we'll probably get into later uh, that leads to bacterial overgrowth or a change of bacteria in the small intestine. And that's why antibiotics work in IBS. Okay. And you mentioned SIBO. And I know there's a new term for the methane type, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. Can you talk about SIBO and IMO and kind of the cause of those? Sure. So, uh, SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and our understanding of SIBO has evolved over the last 26 years. Um, so for example, um, we used to think that the bacteria from the colon are moving into the small intestine and that is SIBO, but that's not exactly how it works. In the case of IBS, the gut isn't flowing correctly because of the previous food poisoning. You get a reduction in cleaning waves of the gut. As a result, certain bacteria that are part of the normal flora use this and find this a great opportunity to beat everybody up and be the winner. And the two bacteria that we've now identified that in, in recent studies that are really the culprits of SIBO in this opportune moment are E. coli and Klebsiella. And the higher they are in the small bowel, they produce more hydrogen. And that's what shows up on the breath test. And that's how you diagnose SIBO. But the higher they are in the, the small intestine, the more they destroy the rest of the bacteria and the microbiome. So it's sort of like you have a gang moving into a town and the town people leave, uh, or many of them do. But if you get rid of the gang, everybody comes back. And, and we see that quite frequently. That's SIBO. Uh, now, SIBO is now divided into two types of, re of late, and that is we now know that there's a hydrogen SIBO and a hydrogen sulfide SIBO, which is sort of the new kid on the block. And, and one of the reasons SIBO has been controversial in quotes 
in the concept of IBS is because the hydrogen level on a breath test never predicted the severity of the symptoms of a patient. So you could have 100 on your breath test, which seems like a lot, but your symptoms are not really different than somebody who has 50 uh, of hydrogen on their breath test. And so that never made sense. But the reality is hydrogen is a fuel for the other gases, and particular hydrogen sulfide, the new kid on the block. Uh, so hydrogen sulfide causes diarrhea. The higher that is, the more diarrhea people have. So it's proportional, it's more logical. Uh, and so now we do the three gas breath test because we have to have hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide and methane to understand the full story. So SIBO is on the diarrhea side, whether you're hydrogen or you're hydrogen sulfide, which means you have more diarrhea. Uh, that's how we sort that out. Intestinal methanogen overgrowth is different it doesn't start from food poisoning. We actually don't know why certain people have the methanogens and that, that it blooms, meaning it goes higher than normal. But when methane is high on your breath test, greater than 10 parts per million, we call that intestinal methanogen overgrowth. And we now know who's causing that. It's a bug called Methanobrevibacter smithii. Uh, and that the higher that is, the more constipated you are if that is higher in your gut. And that's also part of recent publications that we've had. So that we now know the main players of SIBO, both hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, and EMO. And now it gives us a great opportunity for treatment and trying to cure this for patients. Excellent. Great uh, analogies there too. So with the methanogens, are those normally present in the small bowel and they just overgrow or we still just don't know much about it? So one, one hypothesis is that your mom or your dad have methanogens and their colon at a high number, and then you're sharing bathrooms, you're sharing food, you're sharing food preparation, and then you just, it becomes part of you colonizing you. And then at some point, for reasons that's, which we don't understand, it grows at a, to a higher number. So to answer your question specifically, if you have, most people have a little bit of methane and methanogens in the colon. You may not be able to detect it in the breath test, but we can detect it microbiologically. Uh, but they just sit there, they're quiet and they're low in level and that's normal. And, and again, for reasons we don't understand, some people it just goes way up and, and the higher it is, the more constipated people are. So. Right, okay. And then, so there's, we have IBS subtypes. So IBS-C, IBS-D, IBS-mixed for Correct. constipation and diarrhea. So what is the best treatment for each subtype? So um, if you go by the traditionalist route, if you're constipated, you take a laxative. If you're diarrhea, you take an anti-diarrheal. And, and most of the drug development in has, has followed that algorithm. But if you take the microbiology aspect, which we've been talking about, then you divide it into three. So if you have hydrogen on the breath test and you're an IBS patient, Rifaximin is the best choice, at least that's how I do it. Now we know Rifaximin is FDA approved for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea already, so it's an FDA approved approach. Um, and now we know because of the breath test and the hydrogen on the breath test, that's why Rifaximin works. If you have hydrogen sulfide though, Rifaximin alone may not do it. And so if you have a breath test and it's hydrogen sulfide, we now in our practice use Rifaximin with bismuth. Peptobismol, basically, uh, and that's based on a study from the 1990s that shows that 
bismuth is very good at reducing hydrogen sulfide. If your intestinal methanogen overgrowth constipated and you have methane, then rifaximin doesn't work and a lot of antibiotics don't work. But interestingly, if you combine rifaximin with neomycin or combine, and this was a double blind study that proved this, or now rifaximin with metronidazole because neomycin, the generic company that was making it, stopped making it recently, so it's not available. Um, that is able to reduce methane and relieve constipation. And, and this treatment of the microbiome is really treating an underlying mechanism of the constipation and the underlying mechanism of the diarrhea. And the results are far better because you get, you're, you're treating cause. You're not just treating a symptom. I sort of think of, uh, you know, IBS C and D, the traditional therapies as sort of saying, look, if you have cancer and pain, if I give you morphine, the pain will be gone. Don't worry. Right. But the, but the disease is there. You're not treating the cause. You're just treating the symptom. Uh, and obviously, IBS is not cancer, and that's an exaggerated example. But my point is, is correct, is that uh, treating the symptom doesn't treat the disease. And, and a lot of these patients, you know, you have a 19-year-old young woman who's on a medication for the rest of her life to treat constipation, or can we treat the cause and make them better and they stay better? I totally agree. And you mentioned rifaximin, and there's a lot of people who are a bit fearful of antibiotics. So quickly talk about how rifaximin is a unique antibiotic. Well, we're continuing to learn things about rifaximin uh, that make it unique, but we've known for a while that rifaximin, first of all, rifaximin, you would never use it for anything that you would get infected with. So if you had a urine infection or a lung infection or a sinus infection, it doesn't get to those places. It's not used for those infections. So it's not used for any conventional infection. So even if you became resistant to it, it wouldn't affect a future therapy for some life-threatening infection. Uh, so that's one thing. But people don't get resistant to rifaximin. The bugs don't get resistant to rifaximin. We showed that in, in the randomized control trials. The FDA required that. And, and people don't get resistant. In fact, recently, we just did a scan of the microbiome, and we just don't see resistant rifaximin genes anywhere. So rifaximin isn't, doesn't have that resistance issue. And, and that's why we've been so successful at treating and treating again and treating again with rifaximin. So it's a very special sort of molecule. And then it doesn't get absorbed. So it stays in the gut and it is not water soluble. So it mostly dissolves in some of the bile and other chemicals that are in the small intestine. And when it gets to the colon, it doesn't do anything. So people who say, well, if you take an antibiotic, you got to take a probiotic after you don't because rifaximin doesn't mess up the colon bacteria. And so things are usually completely unchanged in the colon. Thank you for explaining that just to relieve some people's minds who have been maybe damaged by previous antibiotic use. So sure. when we go into a gastroenterologist's office, we think about nutrition. One of the first things that comes up is the low FODMAP diet. So is the low FODMAP diet really the best diet for IBS and SIBO? Well, so the low FOD, so we've been talking about diets that reduce bacteria for a long time. In fact, some of our diet advice to patients goes back to 2003. Uh, we, we evolved into what's called the low fermentation diet or low fermentation eating now, and we can get into that. But 
But one extreme is if you don't eat at all, the bacteria are going to die. The bacteria are going to lose food. The, the bloating is going to go down. Obviously, that's not a solution. You have to eat. So low FODMAP is an extreme form of reducing calories to the gut bacteria by reducing almost anything that would ferment. Uh, and, and the problem with the low FODMAP diet, as we've learned over the years, even though it is very successful, is what do you do in the long run? Because over time, people get malnourished because they don't have enough nutrition in the low FODMAP diet. And secondly, it also causes distortions in the microbiome that are unhealthy. It reduces diversity of the colon bacteria. And so in the long run, the low FODMAP diet isn't a good solution. And now there are books written on how to reintroduce foods and start to bring things back because you can't be on it long term. And, and so that's the problem with the low FODMAP diet is sure, it'll work for a little while, but then what next? So talk about your low fermentation diet for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the other challenge with low FODMAP is if you go to a restaurant, it's very hard to find food. It's very difficult. You have to ask 50 questions of the waiter. Does this have this? Does this have that? Yeah. Uh, so part of the low fermentation eating program that we set up is we said, we don't want any of that. Our whole goal in research and research and everything we do is get people back to normal. So one of the things that was sort of the prime focus of trying to make this diet is you got to be able to go to a restaurant and you got to be able to find one thing on the menu that without questions fits. And, and so it's, it reduces things that are fermentable, but it doesn't go to the extreme. Uh, and, uh, and that's basically the principle. So no non-absorbed sugars, no legumes, those are the, the sort of the red lights. You don't do any of those. And then some of the yellow lights are allowed. Um, and, and so you, you're, you're allowed to have certain items that make life less miserable. Um, and, and it really works. So. Great. Good to know. Now talk about your IBS smart test and what type of IBS it's more geared towards. Yeah. So one of the things we, we've spent a lot of time working on is this post-infection. So we think that 60% of IBSD and mixed starts from a food poisoning. Let's say you went on a trip somewhere and you got very bad diarrhea. And then ever since then, your IBS has been there. And so we, we wanted to understand that. So we developed animal models where we were uh, using Campylobacter to, to test this. And we were able to create the exact same thing humans get with these models. And that allowed us to figure out what was it about Campylobacter or Salmonella that made people develop IBS. And we found a toxin that uh, was the culprit. So if we inject that toxin into the animal studies, the animals get IBS. So you don't need the Campylobacter. You don't need Salmonella. You just need that toxin. And we were able to measure those antibodies and then discover that being exposed to that toxin makes you form another antibody to yourself or a protein called vinculin. And when you attack vinculin, you attack the cleaning waves and the nerves of the gut. And when you attack the cleaning waves and the nerves of the gut, you get bacterial overgrowth. And so we said, could we use these two markers in a blood test, the level of anti-CDTB and the level of anti-vinculin to say, you had food poisoning, and you have IBS because of that food poisoning. 
and then close the loop. Because even if uh, a patient gets told they have IBS by their doctor, they go home and they talk to their family and the family says, but you're still suffering. Yeah, I'm still suffering, but the doctor says I have IBS. And the family says, well, how does the doctor know? And the person says, well, I don't know. I guess they're the expert. Uh, so there wasn't a test to say stop. You don't need three colonoscopies that are normal. Just this is it. Uh, and, and this is present in about 56 to 60% of IBSD patients. These antibodies are positive. So it fits uh, perfectly in that. And, and so we use it for two in two ways or two ways primarily to stop the madness and the patients are so gratified when they're positive because they said everybody said it was in my head the disease isn't in your head if you have a positive antibody uh, that doesn't make sense and so it gives them validation that it is a true organic condition and secondly if you have these antibodies you're more likely to get sick when you travel and if you get sick when you travel, those antibodies will go higher and you're more likely to be worse. So the other thing is we, we're very careful with our patients who are positive for the, especially the antivinculin, because if they get higher levels, they're gonna be a lot worse than they are today. And so knowing gives you the information and arms you with the ability to prevent their IBS from ever getting worse. Want to know. Okay. We have the IBS smart tests, the trio smart tests. Are there any other helpful functional labs that you use for figuring out root causes of IBS? Well, a lot of people ask me about a lot of the studies or uh, tests. I mean, looking at stool, we haven't been able to definitively say in stool that if you have this much of something that it's causing IBS, we have in the small intestine, uh, but in stool, we haven't quite worked that out. So you can find methanogens in stool, and you can on some of these uh, uh, labs that do stool testing, but we don't know at what level is abnormal for, for those, those tests. So there's not a lot of other things we do. Of course, we look for celiac disease in some of these patients. That's generally required, but we're trying to minimize testing minimize cost. Uh, I think one of the examples that I have is a patient of mine who came to see me and she had been seeing doctors for two or three years for her IBS. Within a week, we figured it out, treated it, and she was better. But going back over those two years, she had spent $20,000 in co-pays for all the testing she had. So the goal is test less, diagnose more, uh, rather than uh, just keep adding things. I like that because testing is a huge part of the medical expenses and it can yeah. overwhelm a lot of people. So that's good to know that we can get more better with our detective work with less <laughs> expenses. Well, think do you about have it. any? If you, if you do an IBS smart and you're positive, there's a 90 plus percent chance you have IBS. You don't need to do anything more. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, there's always possibility you have two things going on at once. So the doctors have to be cautious. But what I'm saying is, is that can save money and certainly time. You don't have to spend three years to figure out you have IBS. Right. How widely available is this IBS smart test? Because we know there's a lot of doctors who need many, many years of research to start using new techniques. So is it yeah. readily available today? 
It's available. Anybody can order it. They just have to go to the website and, and have it uh, arranged and they have to draw it in their office. So it takes a little effort to get the kit and do it, but it is available to anybody. Uh, I think I think the, the challenge with medicine, like if you go back to the days of, um, you know, Cologuard, uh, if I use that as an example here, are you familiar with Cologuard for colon cancer screening? It's a stool test. So. Yeah, it's a stool test. And now it's recommended for people who are, you know, low risk for colon cancer. Instead of colonoscopy, do your Cologuard every year. It took 10 years for Cologuard to be accepted and now be the sort of the go-to product. It just takes time, education, time, education, and more research. And so, uh, you know, over time, this will be more used and, and more uh, part of practice. Definitely. And that's why I have you on so that we can share this information and get it out there for people because they need to know because most of the doctors are still using those outdated methods, unfortunately. So it's good to know that there's new research. Um, do you have any other research highlights, any announcements that you're working on right now? Well, I, I on social media, I do post occasionally. And this, this month I did post for this year, we're hopeful about two new products that we think will be very exciting for IBS-C and IBSD. It's early, but you know, people are always asking me, well, you know, you keep talking about finding this bug and finding that bug, but what about the treatments? And so the treatments are here and require further study, that's all. And uh, so I think the exciting part of is, I'm not just saying they're the specific names of bugs anymore, that we are now moving into better treatments. And I'm very excited about that. Oh, good news. We, we're all about the treatments. Now, you're not, that's the best part. You're not taking on any patients, correct? So how can people get in touch with you or work with your team? Yeah, so we, we have a website uh, and it's csmast.com. Uh, and the, the website's new. So there's still some things we're, we're adapting and adding, for example, our research study section so that people, if they're interested in participating, can um, join. So we'll be adding all of our research studies in there shortly. Um, that gives them an opportunity to at least understand what we're doing and see where we're at. Uh, I am seeing patients. I'm just full, full, full. Uh, and we're not taking any more news because of just so much demand. Uh, and we have five doctors here who do this kind of work and they're all full, full, full. You can imagine there's 30 million people with IBS in the country and and a lot of them want to come here, or many of them do. So uh, it, it's it's hard to accommodate every single person. But we are, as you said, educating people, and and a lot of my great colleagues all over the world, and and then certainly in the United States, are seeing patients. So we we can, if you're in Boston, we know who's good to see in Boston, and so forth and so on. So if you want to shoot us a message, you can. Excellent. So you have resources or connections all over the country in case someone needs the help. I think so. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, uh, I think that was incredible. If you have anything else to share, um, that would be great. If not, we can just end it here at a wonderful show. It was great being on the show. And uh, I hope this is helpful to the audience. I think uh, what you need to know is we're, we're going to continue to try and work hard at this. Absolutely. And there is hope, right? For people with IBS, there's definitely some hope. Yeah, more hope than ever. So I'm really excited. 
Well, good. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark Pimentel. It was a pleasure having you on. Likewise. Good to be here. Hey there. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Instagram at gutexpertriley, on Facebook at The Gut Pharmacist, same spelling as this podcast, on YouTube at The Gut Pharmacist, and my website is holisticriley.podia.com where you can find information on working with me, my background, and more helpful information to feel empowered in your journey.